Welcome to the Apple for the Teacher podcast, the true crime podcast that features the good apples and the bad apples within the school system. My name is Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host. So join me as I present school stories that are tragic, shocking, unbelievable and outright bizarre. Hello everyone and thank you for joining me today for today's episode. This is episode 48 and the story today was actually given to me by one of our Facebook group members, Kate Diprose. So thank you Kate for your wonderful story. It was another one of those that made me emotional as I was researching it and you'll soon see why. The song you heard at the start is related to the story which I will talk more about later. The story is quite a long one, so there will be two parts. I will release part two as soon as I can in a few days. And let's now say hello to some of our Facebook group members. Hello to Belinda Collins, Estralita Whitehouse, Kim Proenza, Beverly Robinson and Malayla Garpe Sandoval. Malayla, I really hope I said your name correctly. And now I'd like you to listen to a voicemail I received. It's from Michael, who joined the Facebook group and actually has a podcast of his own called Mere Mortals. So take a listen. Hello, Anna and listeners of the Apple for the Teacher podcast. My name's Michael and I only just recently joined the Facebook group and uh, found out about this podcast really. So got a bit of catching up to do. But I did listen to episode 46 of the Iguala mass kidnapping, or I suppose as it should be known, the the mass massacre that occurred there. And while a horrific story was um, very interesting to see your perspective on it and, and your well-researched take on it, can also empathize with your notes about the editing of the podcast. I also do one myself and uh, your seamless transitions and the amount of work that you must put into it is absolutely insane. So Congrats on that, and I'm looking forward to more episodes. Cheers. He was referring to episode 46 of The Missing Student Teachers, and get this, he had travelled to Mexico not long ago and said that people were still talking about this case. Now, the story today took place in Wales in the UK, so Wales is our country of focus today. Mount Everest was named after a Welshman named George Everest, who was the surveyor who initially mapped Mount Everest. Wales is also known for its castles, and there are 600 castles, so Wales has more castles per square mile than any other country in the world. The British royal family always uses Welsh gold for their wedding rings. This tradition was continued in the recent royal wedding of Harry and Meghan. And you may also know that the country of New Zealand has more sheep than people, and Wales is the same. In New Zealand, the ratio is 7 to 1, and in Wales, it's 4 to 1. 
And this final fact is going to be a tongue twister. There is a place in Wales whose name is 58 letters long. Now, I'm going to try to pronounce it. So, here goes. Ian var pool guen gith go go u quern drob uth clandus ilio go go gotch. This translates to St. Mary's Church in the hollow of the white hazel near a rapid whirlpool and the church of St. Ticilio near the red cave. Hmm. And I apologise to any Welsh listeners if I totally butchered your Welsh language. It's the longest name of a place in Europe and it also appeared in the Guinness Book of World Records because it was the longest word to be used in a crossword. Hmm. So let's get into the story. But first, here's a preview. The story is called Avalanche. The village heard a loud rumble. What happened next? For this story, we go back just over 50 years ago to 1966. The incident at the centre of this story occurred in Wales in the UK. In the southwestern part of Wales was a small village called Abervan, which had a population of about 5,000 people. The village had a thriving community which centred around the coal mine nearby, which employed many people from the village. It had been in operation for about 100 years. Wales has had a long history of coal mining. There had been a number of coal mines dotted around the country. However, by the 1960s, the industry declined in favour of oil and many mines across the country ceased operations, except for Abervan, with the mine being the lifeblood of the small community which kept the village alive. Abervan's primary school was called the Pantglass Junior School and had 240 students. There was also a secondary school just within a short walking distance. On a cold and rainy day in October 1966, the children made their way to school. They were particularly excited about this day as it was the last day of term and they would be heading off on school holidays. They only had to attend for half a day, so home time would be at 12 noon. The children walked to school through wet and muddy roads. It had been raining heavily for the last two weeks. Everyone was hoping the better weather would come for the upcoming holidays. The students filed into their classrooms at 9am and the teachers took the attendance roll. Not long after, a very loud noise was heard, which sounded like a jet plane flying very low over the town. Everyone stopped what they were doing, as the noise was unusually loud. Hetty Williams was a teacher in her classroom with her students, and she knew instinctively that the noise was not normal, so she quickly instructed her students to hide under their desks. What happened that day occurred so quickly that no one had time to really react. People looked out of their windows and saw what looked like black quicksand coming down the hill which surrounded the village. Within seconds, the quicksand engulfed the town. The houses nearest were totally consumed and many people recalled later seeing the landslide coming towards them and then pouring in through the windows. 
It was so powerful that everything within its path was hit, including the primary school. A few cottages nearest to the hills were hit first, with the residents being killed. The sludge then travelled across the canal and the railway embankment and into the village. Two water mains buried in the embankment were destroyed, causing additional water to flow with the sludge. Here is what the headmaster of the secondary school recalled, quote, The entrance of the secondary school was approximately two-thirds to three-quarters full of rubble and waste material. I climbed onto the rubble in the doorway, and when I looked directly in front of me, I saw that the houses in Moy Road had vanished in a mass of tip waste material and that the junior school gable ends, or part of the roof, was sticking up out of this morass. I looked down to my right and I saw that the Moy Road houses had gone. The landslide came so quickly and when it finally stopped, the sludge solidified. People who survived said the loud noise they heard eventually stopped and what followed was then an eerie silence. Here is how a teacher from the senior school described the silence. Quote, Everything was so quiet. It was as if nature had realised that a tremendous mistake had been made and nature was speechless. It was clear to those who had somehow miraculously stayed out of the path of the landslide that this was a catastrophe on a huge scale. And it was. A total of 144 people had been killed. That total included 28 adults and the remainder who lost their lives were 116 children. Why so many children? Because the path of the landslide went right through the primary school. So out of a school of 240 children, Almost half were lost in an agonising instant. Despite this occurring 50 years ago, there are numerous black and white photos of the devastation. From the aerial shots, you can clearly see the path of sludge that had come down the hillside and made a pathway straight through the school. There were houses on either side of the school that were hardly touched. It just seemed that fate was hell-bent on devastating the small community's child population. The rescue mission began immediately. People started pulling other people from the rubble, mostly children. You can see so many people with black mud all over them in the photographs. People grabbed what they could to dig through the rubble, including garden tools and even just their own bare hands. The situation was precarious, as there was much unstable debris. The first call to the police had been made by a resident at 9.25am who said, I have been asked to inform you that there has been a landslide at Pantglass. The tip has come down on the school. As word got out, miners who were working in the mine at the time were dispatched to the scene. As a result of the broken water mains, the water continued to move the sludge through the village. The water supply was finally able to be turned off at 11.30, some two hours later. More and more rescue crews were brought in. They had heavy machinery, 
but with people still being buried, the use of this equipment had to be done ever so carefully. Rescuers began finding deceased children, but by some miracle, some were found alive and ferried off to local hospitals. The rescuers consciously listened for cries for help and used whistles to inform everyone to be quiet if sounds were heard in the rubble. The tragedy had struck at just after 9am and by 11am no more survivors were found. It took a further week to have all the children and adults accounted for. As well as the children, five of the teachers died as well. Here is some audio of one of the girls who survived, Gaynor Madwick. Take a listen. I woke up at the corner of the classroom at the back, so I must have been pushed right up to the back. There was um, a radiator which had fallen off the wall, which had broke my legs. Couldn't feel my legs and couldn't see my legs either, and I, I started crying then. The, the wall had opened behind me, there was a child's arm from the elbow hanging through from the, the other classroom into my classroom, but the arm was sort of hanging where my shoulder was. And I remember hanging on to this hand and pinching the hand to see if it was the person was alive, the child was alive. But obviously there was no reactions. So, of course... The country of Wales began asking, how had this devastating disaster occurred? But the people of Aberfan already knew the answer. The landslide had actually been predicted, and I will now go on to explain. Before the tragedy at Aberfan, Wales had already had a history of coal mining disasters, which had resulted in more than 6,000 people losing their lives during mine operations but nothing had compared to what happened in Aberfan that fateful day. The mining of coal goes through a number of processes. After it is washed, the waste that is left over is loaded onto rail trains and dumped at various sites called dump tips. This waste is of no more use, and the village had a number of these dump tips dotted around the valley. When looking at photographs of the village, you could see the mounds of waste up in the hills above the village. At first, they just look like hills, but they are actually huge mounds of this waste product. There were seven of these mounds overlooking the village. Numerous concerns about the dangers of the seven tips which overlook the village had previously been made to the NCB which is the National Coal Board, which owned and operated the mines in Wales. And I will refer to the board as the NCB throughout the rest of the story. Some of the tips had already slipped before, but only on a very small scale compared to what happened in Aberfan that day. In the past, many letters had been sent to the NCB from the local council expressing concerns from engineers about the tips. Here is what one engineer wrote in a letter to the NCB. Quote, I regard it as extremely serious, as the slurry is so fluid and the gradient so steep 
that it could not possibly stay in position in the wintertime or during periods of heavy rain. The concerns expressed by the community were brushed aside by the NCB. They had rescued the dwindling coal industry in Wales and their employees and union officials served on the local council, giving them a firm grip. Many were afraid of speaking out in fear that their livelihoods would be destroyed if the mine closed down. In particular, tip number seven had been the one of most concern as it was located right above the school. The school also sent a petition to the NCB, but it was ignored. And that tip was the very one that ended up taking the lives of the 144 people, including almost half of the town's children. The tip had stood on an underground spring and had slipped three years previously, leaving a huge crater at the top. On the day of the disaster, at about 7.30 in the morning, the tip had started sinking, starting the process of the landslide, which eventually hit the town at about 9.15. If only the sinking had started a few hours earlier, the school would have been empty. A period of heavy rain led to a build-up of water within the tip, which caused it to suddenly slide downhill as a slurry. After three weeks of heavy rain, the tip was saturated and approximately 140,000 cubic yards or 110,000 cubic metres of spoil slipped down the side of the hill and onto the pant glass area. It was described as thick black quicksand and a tsunami of sludge which buried everything in its path. The Prime Minister of the UK at the time, Harold Wilson, visited Aberfan on the first night of the disaster, calling for an immediate independent inquiry. Then the next day, Queen Elizabeth II's brother-in-law, Lord Snowden, visited as well, and as did the Queen's husband, Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh. Also that night, Lord Robins visited the site. He was the chairman of the NCB. He held a press conference saying, that the NCB would work with the public inquiry, stating the following, quote, The NCB will not seek to hide behind any legal loophole or make any legal quibble about responsibility. He was asked a number of questions by the television news teams regarding the theory that people were making that it was the spring under the tip which caused the landslide. His response was as follows. I wouldn't have thought myself that anybody would know that there was a deep spring in the heart of a mountain, any more than I can tell you there is one under our feet where we are right now. If you are asking me, did any of my people on the spot know that there was this spring water, then the answer is no, they couldn't possibly. It was impossible to know that there was a spring in the heart of this tip which was turning the centre of the mountain into sludge. However, this was actually not true. It was common knowledge that the spring existed and it could clearly be seen on maps that were drawn of the area. Six days after the disaster, a mass funeral was held for the children. A pair of trenches had been dug, which were 80 foot long or 24 metres long. 
about 10,000 people attended the funeral. Only days after the tragedy, after resolutions in both Houses of Parliament, the Secretary of the State for Wales formally appointed a tribunal to inquire into the disaster. The chairman of the inquiry was Lord Justice Edmund Davies, who had been born and schooled in a nearby village. The tribunal spent the next five months taking witness testimony. At the time, it was the longest-running inquiry in British history. When the disaster occurred, the NCB chairman, Lord Robins, came under criticism for his lack of an immediate response to the tragedy. As we saw, the Prime Minister visited the very first night, and the next day, Lord Snowden and the Duke of Edinburgh attended. Lord Robins arrived at the scene that night. He had failed to attend the scene immediately. Instead, he kept an appointment which saw him installed as the Chancellor at a university. Here is his response to the criticism. Quote, The appearance of a layman at too early a stage inevitably distracts senior and essential people from the tasks upon which they should be exclusively concentrating. End quote. This action was never forgotten by the community, and boy was that a pathetic excuse. During the inquiry, the NCB came under intense scrutiny. However, Lord Robins denied all responsibility for what happened. He stated that it was an act of God, geological factors and heavy rain that was to blame. Although it had been raining, it wasn't unusual for that time of the year. Evidence gathered by the inquiry showed that the tip had previously shown signs of slipping which Lord Robins refuted. As already mentioned, it had been common knowledge that the underground spring existed under Tip 7, yet Lord Robins still disputed that it existed, saying it was impossible to know that there was a spring in the heart of this tip. During his testimony, there was an uproar by those community members present who shouted, quote, our children have been murdered, and mark the death certificate buried alive by the coal board. Finally, after months of investigations, the tribunal handed down its findings. It concluded that the NCB disregarded the unstable conditions of the tip and failed to act after the smaller slides had occurred. The tips had never been surveyed, and waste was continually added to the tips in haphazard ways. The tribunal stated that the NCB was responsible for the tragedy. Quote, the Aberfan disaster is a terrifying tale of bungling ineptitude by many men charged with tasks for which they were totally unfitted, of failure to heed clear warnings, and of total lack of direction from above. Not villains, but decent men, led astray by foolishness or by ignorance, or by both in combination, are responsible for what happened at Abervan. They also found that there had not been any legislation in place that governed the use and safety of tips. In fact, there were only two countries in the world 
that had this type of legislation at the time. Although Robins and Nine Staff were found to have some degree of responsibility, so shockingly, no one was prosecuted, no one lost their jobs, and no one was demoted or fined. And how unbelievable is this? Lord Robins was later elected to chair the Review of Health and Safety in Wales. Are you kidding? Where was his regard for the health and safety of the people in Aberfan? Just another example of government corruption. But having said that, the review did result in the implementation of the Health and Safety at Work Act of 1973, which is still in place today. The tribunal also ordered the NCB to pay compensation to the families, but they only offered a measly £50 for each family. However, after much criticism and pressure from the families, it was raised to £500. Now, this doesn't sound a lot, but then again, it was 50 years ago, so perhaps it was okay for the time. A disaster fund was also set up by the mayor, which managed to raise £1.75 million through donations, which would be about £20 million today. So this sounds wonderful that so much money was raised for the community, right? Well, not so. The Charity Commission was the government department that oversaw the funds. Each family that requested payment was first examined, quote, to ascertain whether the parents had been close to their children and were thus likely to be suffering mentally. I am just lost for words. If a child was not injured but was suffering mentally, they were excluded from payment. Oh dear. However, there was some good news. The fund was used to build a community centre in the village and a memorial garden, which was opened by the Queen seven years later in 1973. The garden is still on the site where the school once stood. Following the inquiry, the community then initiated a campaign to have the tips removed but were told that they were irrational. What? They were told the tips would be landscaped but not removed. Not satisfied with this response, they emptied sacks of coal slurry at a government office and the government finally capitulated. They ordered the NCB to remove the pits. The NCB then went about attaining quotes for the estimated costs of removing the tips. But, surprise, surprise, they refused to pay as the cost was too high. The Treasury Department itself also refused to pay. The government initially wanted to do landscaping, which was a cheaper option. Eventually, an agreement was reached for the NCB, the government and the trust fund to jointly provide the money necessary to remove the pits. The trust fund had felt under great pressure to use the funds and only did so as they felt that if they didn't, then the tips would never be removed. There had been much debate within the fund itself about this decision, 
with some members resigning in protest. This action was actually unlawful under charity law, but had gone ahead nonetheless. Then we fast forward 30 years after the disaster, and the government announced that it would repay the money taken from the trust fund to pay for the tip removal, with one of the survivors saying, quote, I'm very pleased, although it should not have taken this long to have the £150,000 returned to the fund. However, all was not as it had seemed, as no allowance was made for inflation or the interest that would have been earned over that time. Then, after another 10 years, the Welsh Government made a donation to the Trust Fund, which was adjusted for inflation, which was good to hear. And, as is often the case, it takes a tragedy such as Aberfan for new laws and regulations to be put in place. As a result of the inquiry, the government created new legislation three years after the disaster in 1969, which provided laws and regulations governing mines and mine pits in Wales, but also to other countries around the world. So perhaps this was some consolation for the families and the community. So that's the end of part one. Before the end, you will hear part of the song that was written about the disaster. It is such a moving song, so much better than any pop song. It really captures what happened really well. You'll only hear the chorus, but if you'd like to find it yourself on YouTube, the song is called Abervan, A-B-E-R-F-A-N, and the band is called Dullahan, D-U-L-A-H-A-N. And now before we finish, here is a podcast recommendation for you. It's called Fresh Hell Podcast. Now, I came across this podcast and I hadn't actually seen it before. And I had a bit of a listen and I was very pleasantly surprised. The two ladies do a really good job at telling the stories. You know, quite often it's these lesser known podcasts that end up being really surprising and really well done. You know, we tend to always look at, you know, the well-known podcasts, but there are a lot of other ones out there that are not well-known and they are really good. So here are the two ladies telling you about their podcast. Take a listen. I'm Annie from Boston, Massachusetts. And I'm Johanna from Vienna, Austria. We are the hosts of Fresh Hell, your international podcast that covers murder, mystery and the macabre throughout history. Are you interested in the 3,569 ways your household could have killed you in the Victorian era? Do you know how malaria and syphilis played a role in the John List family murders? And have you ever wondered what Prince Albert's sex chair had to do with the murder of Stanford White? Okay, nothing. It had nothing to do with it. We're still telling you about it, though. It's a pretty great sex chair. If you're looking for another show that talks about Ted Bundy, this is probably not the podcast for you. But if you're looking for two women that cover lesser-known cases from all over the world with a lot of background information. So much background information that you will rock your local pub quiz from now on. Then find Fresh Hell Podcast on your favorite podcast app. We also have German cannibals. See you soon. Tschüss. So, let's finish now with our usual end-of-episode quote. Maths teacher, I have five beer bottles in one hand and six in the other. 
What do I have? Student, a drinking problem. Bye for now and remember to be a good apple. Children in the town of Aberfan.